we continue in the season of Advent. But what is Advent? Is it more than a calendar filled with uh, chocolates or special glossy Advent adverts for food and drink on TV? Our word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so Christians in the season of Advent are looking forward to the coming or arrival of Jesus. During Advent, one of the ways we look forward to Jesus arriving, as Lionel was emphasizing last week, is by anticipating the future event of the second coming, as foretold by Christ himself and recorded in Scripture. But there are two other ways in which we celebrate the coming of Jesus during Advent. One is by remembering his birth in Bethlehem, his first coming, his incarnation. The other is by contemplating the coming of Jesus to take up residence in our own hearts as believers, where through an act of surrender we submit ourselves in humility to the will of God. It's these two strands of Advent that we're especially focusing on this morning as we consider the the scripture reading that we've just heard. This is a tale of the advent or coming of two babies who have much in common, but also much that distinguishes them from each other. And it's also a tale of two human responses to the events that are about to unfold as preparations are made for God to enter the world as a baby. Before we get into the subject matter, however, I feel it might be necessary for us to prepare properly before we consider these preparations. You've heard, about, you've heard of talks about talks. Preparation for preparation. Earlier this week on TV, Brian Cox was discussing the nature and origins of the universe and the theory of the Big Bang, whether or not anything existed before the Big Bang, etc., And part of me is disappointed that today's theme isn't accompanied by some sort of big bang, a booming cannon, something explosive at the very least, fireworks, flashing lights. For in the passage we are reading today, preparations are being made for the biggest event in history. Preparations are being made for God to intervene in human history. Preparations are being made for God who created everything, everything that exists to become a human being. Shouldn't someone, shouldn't God himself be making something of a fuss about this? But as we've had reason to see before, this does not seem to be God's way. We don't find it broadcast on the first century equivalent of the six o'clock news. There's no dramatic music. There are no portentous announcements save those made privately to individual men and women. And this remains disconcerting for us. It's not what we expect, and it's not the way we would have done it. The whole story of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is not what we expect. Or the way the Israelites of the day would have done it. It's all counterintuitive and disappointingly low-key, we might think. In his poem, The Wasteland, T.S. Eliot writes, This is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end, not with a bang, but a whimper. 
And this is the way God's incarnation begins, not with a big bang, not with a loud explosion, not with a fanfare of trumpets, but with a whimper. The whimper of a newborn baby, or more accurately, the whimpers of two newborn babies. All the more reason then for me to startle myself and to try to startle you into a realization of what we are reading about here. For this is the greatest story ever told. This is the most remarkable story. The story that shakes science and history, philosophy and theology to their very core. I think we're so familiar with the story we read in Luke this morning that we need startled out of the complacent feeling that we've heard all this before. But it's not just the familiarity of the passage and the words and the story, it's also the content of the story. Instead of some blockbuster documentary by Cox or Attenborough with awe-inspiring images examining the cosmic implications of the preparations being made in the heavens for God to become man, what do we get? Although, as we will see, some of the content of the passage is extraordinary, it's also predominantly a story about domestic things, maternal things, about families and relationships, about ordinary joys and disappointments, about men and women, husbands and wives, about human frailty and human faithfulness. So are we ready then for the greatest story ever told? but told to us in terms of a domestic family drama? Are we ready to learn of the plans that were made for Almighty God to become an actor in that drama? Not at first in the lead role, but as a bit part player, a child actor, unable to speak, reliant on ordinary people to make him welcome and keep him safe from the many dangers that confronted him. Are we ready to engage with what Paul meant when he wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in his presence. If we're ready to read about the most extraordinary events from the most ordinary of perspectives, then we can begin to look again at how preparations were made to change the world forever and to renew God's plan for his creation. So we need to look at this tale of two babies being born into two branches of the same family. The tale of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth and how within six months of each other, they came into the world. The tale of the beginnings of their relationship to each other and the different roles they would take up later. The tale of fundamentally how they were conceived. We're told that John's father is from the tribe of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses and the first high priest of Israel. And authority was given to Aaron that all priests subsequently should be male descendants of his. Zechariah is one of those male descendants. And his wife Elizabeth is also a descendant of Aaron. And so we find Zechariah, one of these male descendants of Aaron, officiating officiating in the temple one day, having been given responsibility to go into the temple on behalf of the people who waited outside and there to present prayers to God 
accompanied by the burning of incense. So on the one hand, we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, descendants of Aaron, soon to become the parents of John the Baptist. And on the other, Joseph and Mary, unbeknown to them, but about to become the parents of Jesus, the earthly parents of the Son of God. And as we saw last week, Jesus is about to be born into a family of people who are descendants of King David. So both children are to be born into families deeply rooted in the story of God's dealings with the people of Israel. They are to be born into families that are related to each other. And Jesus and John are understood to be cousins. They are, born, they are to be born to parents who are in good standing spiritually with God. Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be righteous, even blameless. And Mary is described as being highly favored by God. But set against the similarity of their backgrounds, there is a stark contrast here as well, of course. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. In fact, we are told they are very old and they have not had any children. Elizabeth has been unable to conceive, we are told. And we also understand from what we know about our own society and what we understand about the culture in which Elizabeth and Zechariah lived that this would be highly problematic for them. Couples, especially the women within couples who do not have children, are extremely vulnerable to negative reputation, to stigma, to a sense of failure surrounding them, typically resulting in a great deal of pain and personal sadness. Mary and Joseph, on the other hand, are young. They are not yet married, but they are betrothed to be married and are probably cohabiting. They have not had sexual relations and Mary is a virgin. They are living with the hopeful expectancy of the young couple who have all ahead of them everything to look forward to. And so, believe it or not, this is the stage that has been set to allow preparations to begin for the greatest event in the history of of the world. The old priestly couple living lives that are righteous in the sight of God but nonetheless living under the cloud of their childlessness the sadness in their own hearts and the prejudice that others have shown towards them and their young relatives in Nazareth about to embark on their married lives together. And onto this stage enters Gabriel, an angel. Now angels are not gods in themselves. They're spiritual beings created by God and operating somewhere between God and human beings. In the Bible, they're never discussed or described in isolation. They're always depicted as acting on God's behalf in relation to a specific incident or event, as is the case here. We know something about Gabriel because he appears elsewhere in the Bible where he's described as an archangel, a senior angel. And it seems appropriate that it would be a senior angel who would be charged with the responsibility of bringing news of this importance to the people concerned. So the angel Gabriel visits first Zechariah, engaged with his priestly duties in the privacy of the temple, dispensing incense while the people wait outside, and later to Mary, alone, at home, in Nazareth. While we may not be startled by what we are reading today, both Zechariah and Mary are startled by the sudden presence of Gabriel, a messenger from God, suddenly alongside them. 
we can only imagine their surprise, bordering on shock and even fear. And in both instances, Gabriel is aware of their trepidation. For he says quickly to both of them, do not be afraid. We see see the same reaction and the same words of reassurance in the next chapter of Luke, where the shepherds are out in the fields watching their sheep by night, and where we read, Just then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the shepherds are not just scared, they're terrified. And we can imagine the same kind of terror at first filled the old man Zachariah and the young woman Mary, caught up unexpectedly in these unusual encounters and conscious of something of the glory of God in the presence of Gabriel. But do not be afraid, insists Gabriel to both of them. And just as the angel with the shepherds counters their fear with the promise of good news and great joy, so too Gabriel. To the old man Zechariah, who has never been able to have children, he says, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And to the young virgin Mary, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So to the very old man, Zechariah, Gabriel makes the improbable promise of a son, John, who will bring him great pride in his old age and will go on to prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord God. To the young woman, Mary, he makes the impossible prophecy that the Son of God will be conceived within her, that he will be born and raised by Joseph and herself as their child, Jesus, and that he will become not just king of the Jews, but the eternal Lord of the universe. To each of them, he also explains and emphasizes the role that the Holy Spirit will play in all of this. He explains that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb even before he is born. And he explains that in order for Mary to conceive, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High overshadow her. And so it is that in this way, preparations for the incarnation are set in train. Two babies are to be born in the strangest of circumstances. One to prepare the way for the other. One who will become a remarkable man, his voice heard calling loudly in the wilderness of the Israel of his adult years, calling the people to repentance and drawing their attention to that second child, his cousin, a man so remarkable and unique that he is both fully human and fully divine, both Mary's boy child and God's own son.
One, John, will pay with his life for his witness to the truth. And the other, Jesus, who will pay with his life on account of his love for us, but through whose death and resurrection and continuing mediation will become our assurance of redemption and eternal peace with God. It's for these reasons that we celebrate Christmas, for it marks the beginning of the New Testament, the new covenant between God and man, the new kingdom of heaven, initiated neither loudly nor ostentatiously, but also quietly by the birth of the baby in the manger in Bethlehem, yet continuing to this day and for all time to come. But as we prepare to celebrate again his coming this Christmas, we should perhaps take a a little time to reflect on the contrasting ways in which Zechariah and Mary respond to God's message conveyed to them by the angel Gabriel and to reflect a bit of the response of our own hearts to the miracle of God's, God's good news. Zechariah's response to the news that he and his wife are to have a son in their dotage is entirely reasonable, we might think. He and his wife are very old, and despite his years of devoted service as a priest, despite the fact of his righteousness in the eyes of God, he's struggling to believe. In his sudden encounter with God's messenger and God's unbelievably good news, it is his very sensible human doubts that come to the surface. Elizabeth and he are surely not capable of bringing a son into the world at this late stage. Humanly speaking, this is ridiculous. And so he says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Give me something or show me something that will convince me to believe, he seems to say. And Gabriel is not amused. I am the angel Gabriel, come to you direct from God's presence with this news and yet you won't believe me. These things that I have told you will come to pass just as I have said, but in the meantime, I will render you incapable of speech. A bit like Thomas in relation to the similarly unbelievable fact of Christ's resurrection, Zechariah will believe it when he sees it, of course. But in the meantime, he will not be able to provide his own commentary on the unfolding events. Mary's response to the news that she is to conceive and give birth to a son is initially rooted in the same rational doubt. And for Mary, the things she is being told are not just unbelievable. They will require a complete departure from the recognized laws of nature. How will this be since I am a virgin? A virgin cannot have a baby, she gently reminds Gabriel. But in the light of the words, Gabriel then speaks to her. Her second response is to simply put herself at God's disposal. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You may remember a few weeks back that when we studied the wedding at Cana, we were, and we saw that Jesus turned water into wine. Mary's advice to the servants at the household there was, do whatever he tells you. At that later stage in her life, it's clear Mary has learned from her special experience that, as the angel says to her here, no word from God ever fails. And so it must be with us. 
when confronted with the frankly unbelievable but ridiculously good news that God became a baby and grew to be a man who lived a perfect life, was executed but overcame death, all for our sake and not for his own, then, once our all-too-human objections are laid aside, our only adequate response is simply to surrender and to say with repentance and thanksgiving in our hearts, I am your servant, Lord. I will do whatever you tell me. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and take up residence there.